Father, as we come to this beginning message on the book of Ephesians, we pray that you would open our hearts, uh, oh God, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, melt us and mold us, uh, break us, conform us to your word. Give us encouragement today as we reflect upon the heartbeat of this letter, grace and peace. May it truly be ours in all of its abundance through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, maybe you're like me. You have a mobile device, and on that mobile device, you can, if you're going on a journey, be it 10 minutes to another neighborhood or 10 hours to another state, you can bring up that map application, and then you can enter in where you're going, and it gives you step-by-step directions so that you can get to the place you need to be. Do you you use that? The map functions on your mobile device? It's just really handy. But for some, there's a bit of a frustration with these maps. Maybe you're like Renee. Not that Renee ever gets frustrated. Certainly not with me. But Renee's kind of old-timey in in certain ways, and that she actually, how many of you know what a AAA triptych is? You know, those ancient things that are in museums now? Well, the first page of a AAA trip, and this is not an ad for AAA, so don't go out telling people, Tim told the congregation to subscribe to AAA, but the first page of the AAA triptych is an overview of the entire journey from start to finish. And so you can have your overview of your entire journey here always available for you to look at as you go about progressing through each step of the journey. And there's a principle here. Knowing the big picture enables one to navigate the individual parts with the proper perspective. That is to have the proper context for every single turn. And I want to suggest to you that, and the point is that some of these maps on mobile devices don't do a very good job of allowing you to have that overview readily available. You have to really hunt for it. And so Renee feels more assurance as she's able to have that overview as she's taking each step of the journey. And I want to suggest to you that working through the book of Ephesians is similar to this. That that principle of having the big picture to have the proper context for each step is behind this sermon. And so as we're looking at the book of Ephesians, we want to ask the question, what is that overview? What is the big picture of the book of Ephesians. Many of you have read Ephesians, so you know there are all kinds of of helpful realities and instructions that Paul gives in this letter. And sometimes just focusing on one part of Ephesians, you can become lost and lose sight of the big picture of Ephesians. And so today, this message is more like that overview map of this very important letter that we can have readily available for us as in the coming weeks we began to dive deeply into each individual part and my hope is that today's message as we look at the big picture of Ephesians as we look at the heartbeat of Ephesians 
will be readily available so that we can see each part in its proper context. And in so doing, we'll be able to, to benefit from our study of Ephesians. Well, this brings up the question, what is the big picture of Ephesians? And I believe we find the answer in the first two verses, which is our topic uh, today as we look at this greeting that the Apostle Paul gives to the church there in Ephesus. And you will see in the sermon outline that I've just simply taken three points, the three points, the three categories that we find in verses 1 and 2 and formed it into a sermon outline. The apostle, the faithful saint or faithful saints, and grace and peace. So if you have your Bibles open to the first chapter of Ephesians, I'll read for us these two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is the author of this letter to the church in Ephesus? This is the first question every commentary deals with. This is the first question most sermon series begins with. But who is the author of the book of Ephesians? I think there's overwhelming evidence to point to the Apostle Paul being the human author to the book of Ephesians. But let's just pause for a moment and look at the Apostle Paul. Paul, who in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, called himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. And his life really shows that, especially his life before his conversion. In Acts chapter 7, we read of Paul, who stood by and tacitly gave approval for Stephen, this deacon in the church, and a great preacher's martyrdom as the Jews stoned Stephen to death. Paul, who in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, tells us that his goal in life, his ministry as a Jew, was to persecute Christians with the hope of eradicating the church. Paul, who in Acts chapter 9 and verses 1 through 19, on his way to Damascus to further persecute Christians, found himself blind before the risen Christ and was gloriously and miraculously converted. And then as we read in that ninth chapter of Acts in verse 15, that he received commissioning from Christ as the apostle to the Gentile world. And then we also think of Paul who, in the book of Ephesians itself, both in chapter 3 and verse 1 and chapter 4 and verse 1, speaks of being a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was a prisoner because the context of that we read in Acts chapter 28, where the apostle Paul was under house arrest in Rome awaiting to appeal to Caesar. This is Paul, who is the apostle, who is considered to be the author and is, I believe, the author of the book of Ephesians. I just want to make two points in light of some of the things 
that we've learned in this very, very brief biography of the Apostle Paul. The fact that Paul says, I'm a prisoner in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, clues us in on when the book of Ephesians was written. And it was written somewhere in A.D. 60 to 62, which is the date given to Paul's imprisonment in Rome. And a second thing we want to just focus on very briefly in light of this biography of Paul and in light of the text, Paul is called an apostle, a capital A apostle. And, and what are the criteria for one being an apostle, the 12 plus the apostle Paul and, of course, Matthias, the replacement for Judas? First of all, one who was commissioned directly by Christ. Secondly, one who saw the risen Christ. Thirdly, one who was invested with miraculous gifts like healing and, and casting out demons. And the purpose of these miraculous gifts being invested to these capital A apostles was to validate their message that it was authentic, that the gospel they preached was the true gospel and we know that the Apostle Paul met all these criteria supremely. He's the author of Ephesians, right? But is he? Fooled you. Look at what the text says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so if you said, yes, Paul is the apostle, you're right. If you said, no, Paul is not the ultimate. I mean, if, if you said Paul is the author, you're right. If you said Paul is not the ultimate author, you're right. Because God is the ultimate author by the will of God. By the will of God, Paul was given apostleship of Christ Jesus. And by the will of God... Paul was a human instrument for God to speak his word to the saints in Ephesus. And so as we approach the book of Ephesians then, this is not just some piece of literature that has good prose that some would say is different than, than the language and the syntax of other of Paul's epistles, and so it's unique in that perspective. This is the very word of God that is spoken to the saints in Ephesus, that, that they may be faithful as saints in Christ Jesus. And it's the very Word of God that comes to us through the Apostle Paul for us today that we might be faithful as saints here in Little Rock. So please know that the Word of God is eternal and it has relevance and meaning to every generation. These words are for us today as much as they were for the Ephesians in the first century when they were first spoken. I say that that we might really be excited about learning of what God has for us. Come on, folks. Thank you, Doc. So through Paul, what did, what did God tell the Ephesians? What, what did God want the Ephesians to know that would be of great edification and encouragement to them? That they are faithful saints. That they are faithful saints who live in Ephesus, a great city. 
And if they are faithful saints who are in Christ, that's why they're faithful, and that's why they're saints, and that's why they're put in Ephesus. So how are we to understand then this, this use of this nomenclature in this introductory part of the book of Ephesians? Faithful saints, how are we to understand that? Faithful does mean one who agrees to do something and they actually do it. They fulfill an obligation or a commitment. And aren't we called to be faithful in obeying the Lord Jesus right where we are, be it Ephesus or Little Rock? Well, faithful also refers to one placing their trust and their hope in Christ Jesus Those who are faithful are those who are united to Christ in saving faith. And because they're united to Christ in saving faith, we are saints of God. Now, unlike some traditions that would say a saint is only a super-Christian, like the recent sainthood of Mother Teresa, did she make it? But the Bible tells us that everyone who has saving faith is in, because they're united to Christ is a saint of God. And just read 1 Peter 2. It's a wonderful passage about God making a holy nation a royal priesthood. It's very encouraging that here the Apostle Paul speaks of faithful saints those who, yeah, seek to obey Jesus, whose lives conform to Jesus, but, but even before that, those who are united to Christ in saving faith and are saints and sons of the living God. Well, do you find it hard to be a faithful saint? Come on. All right, some are honest. Some are still thinking. I find it hard to be a faithful saint. I want to be a faithful saint. I'm glad to be called a faithful saint. But I really struggle within and I face struggle from without living as a faithful saint. Faithful saints in heaven? No. That's what the text says. That's where we're going. But we're faithful saints in Ephesus. God has placed his saints in a broken and really messed up world. And the faithful saint feels the pressure of that every day. The Bible does not teach that we just simply come to Jesus and everything is great from here on out and we have no more worries, concerns, or cares. Because that's not the purpose of the faithful saint. The faithful saint is one like a ship being built for the rough seas. Not to just simply hang out in the harbor and eat seafood at the harbor restaurant in safety. The faithful saint is in Ephesus, Paul says. He's writing to the faithful saint in Ephesus. 
And so let's look at some things about Ephesus, the most important city in the Roman province of Asia, ancient Ephesus, a harbor town. I mean, it was the end of the line for the trade route heading west. So everything heading west in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, went through the harbor town of Ephesus. Hey, it was a sophisticated town. It was where everything was happening, clubs and nightlife. It had a theater. In fact, the largest amphitheater excavated the ancient world is in the archaeological site of Ephesus had a stadium for sport it had a library even though some think the library actually came to its full uh, glory after the first century but nonetheless had a library had an agora marketplace a town center for shopping had a bath with a sewer system I know because I've actually been in the bath and I've seen the sewer system. It had paved streets, had beautiful architecture, beautiful mosaic floors, frescoes on the wall. I mean, it was a really sophisticated town. It was also a spiritual town. The people there were interested in magic and the occult. It was a town known as a town of false religions. In Acts chapter 19, you just read Acts chapter 19, you'll see the Apostle Paul faced opposition during his two-year stint in Ephesus as part of his third missionary journey. And as the gospel was beginning to take hold in that sophisticated spiritual town called Ephesus, it resulted in some riots and some real opposition against the church. You may remember reading or learning that the temple of Artemis, or or in the Latin Diana, was there in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a spiritual town. It was a town of false religion. And it was an economically thriving town. How do we know that? Because it was a spiritual town filled with false religions, and those who practice false religion love their idols, and the silversmith trade <laughs> rose up to provide all of the trinkets uh, for those who wanted to be spiritual in the town of Ephesus and get the little silver god and or maybe a little image of this, this fertility goddess Diana and, and worship it. I mean, that, that, that was... Ephesus, with all of its sophistication, with all of its infrastructure, with a sewer system in the first century, all of this advance, it was a spiritually bankrupt and broken place. Now, I want to ask us to reflect on something. That's ancient Ephesus. What about modern Little Rock? Do you find similarities between ancient Ephesus and, or any town of the ancient world and modern Little Rock or any town of the modern world? Little Rock is a great place to live, a good economy, a sophisticated uh, town, wouldn't you say? 
sophistication to meet all of your sophisticated needs and wants and desires. You've got it right here in Little Lake. Great shopping, wonderful restaurants, an infrastructure and city services, great parks and recreation, a financial and medical center. I mean, think of all of the great things we have here in this modern city of Little Rock. But like Ephesus, with all of Little Rock's sophistication and infrastructure and opportunity, it's a spiritually bankrupt and broken place. And like the Ephesians, who were sovereignly placed by God in the ancient city of Ephesus, Covenant Presbyterian Church, and every believer associated with us is sovereignly placed by God in the city of Little Rock. So you see, the Bible is relevant for us today, isn't it? The brokenness of Little Rock, I think, is seen in a number of ways. We do have some racial division in our city. We do have crime. I don't know what the murder rate is, but it's pretty significant for a city our size. I think there are issues with neglecting the poor. I think there are immoral positions and policies with, within our government, both our city, our state, our federal government. There, there's a sense of just a basic lack of respect for one another, abortion on demand. If we were to be able to go out today and just survey who's in church and who isn't in church, not that going to church makes you a true <laughs> Christian, but I think we would find that a, a large number of citizens of our fair city have no need for God and have no need for God's people and have no need to worship our God. And so I would, I would suggest to you that we live in a spiritually bankrupt and broken place that has similarities to ancient Ephesus. Would you? Well, the twelfth man phenomenon. Y'all know about the twelfth man phenomenon? I know Deborah Byerman does. She's an A&M person, and that's one of the places where the twelfth man phenomenon is very popular these days. And, but it's with, with teams with 11 players, the twelfth man refers to the fans in the stands. And the fans in the stands can really impact the outcome of a game. Now, I'm beginning to doubt this after my team's performance yesterday, but we won't go there. I've, uh, I've decided not to speak much about individual sports teams from the pulpit. That can get you into trouble, but this is a day of mourning. <laughs> and, Doc, if you say amen... I'm coming after you. Okay. Um, I mean, the fans in the stand can really encourage their team to stay in the game, encourage their team to keep pushing forward, to make that miraculous play, to win the game, to stay in and win. The, the 12th man 
can impact the outcome of the game. You may be thinking, what on earth does the 12th man have to do with the book of Ephesians? Well, are God's people not in a game or better, in a race? And are we not in a difficult spot living in this world with it does have joys and benefits it is God's world but it also is a hostile world towards the church like Ephesus and there's opposition and difficulty and do we not need to be encouraged and God has not left us without exhortation without encouragement without cheering for us to stay in the game, to stay engaged in the race, and to run to win. And I would commend to you that one way to look at the book of Ephesians, the one way to look at the Apostle Paul is this God through Paul cheering us on to run the race of the Christian life. And what's interesting is that Paul's in the race, and at the same time, he is the instrument the 12th man, so to speak, to cheer on the church, to be faithful in the game, even in light of it being tough and difficult. And it's true for us today. So what is Paul cheering us on? How is he doing that? It really is seen in the salutation, verses 1 and 2. And really, verse 2, the salutation, grace to you and, and peace. This is a summary or the heartbeat of what, what Paul, how Paul is cheering us on in the entire letter of the book of Ephesians to be faithful saints, both in what we believe and in how we live. And think about it like this. The book of Ephesians is about grace, And the result of grace, peace. And I think so many people just brush over this salutation, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, and don't think anything about it. But in fact, it is the heartbeat of the entire book. It helps. It is that overview that we need to keep in mind as we're studying through the particular parts of the book of Galatians. And, And we see this heartbeat in the central part of the entire letter, chapter 4 and verse 1. Turn there. It's where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. And of course, Paul's use of the word therefore directs us to consider what has come before chapter 4 and verse 1, which happens to be chapters 1 through 3. But what is the content of chapters 1 through 3? I think we can sum it up in one word, grace. Listen to this. Chapter 1, verse 7, the riches of His grace. Chapter 1, verse 18, riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 7, riches of His grace. Chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, the riches of His glory. The anthem for the offertory ended with this note of the rich grace of God. That really summarizes beautifully the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. It's this 
Paul giving us this grand and glorious exposition of the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus that redeems us unto God and makes us his saints and his son. In these first three chapters, the riches of his grace is is declared in light of who God is and who we are in Christ. I want us to look at that chapters 1 through 3 being orthodoxy. This is the truth about who God is. This is the truth or the reality about who you are in Christ, saint who lives in Ephesus, saint who lives in Little Rock. What Paul is interested in is that we, we come to, to hear yet again, to be reminded of, to be further engaged with the realities of the truth of God's redeeming grace, the riches of His grace in Christ Jesus that has taken you out of slavery, made you sons, that has taken you out of being an enemy of God and made you a saint of God. Paul is simply saying, Be encouraged. These are the facts. This is the truth. The riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. You know, more than anything else, we need to hear God and God through Paul cheer us on with the truth. How rich and wonderful and glorious is the grace of God that redeems us It makes a difference in our life to understand that our identity is in Christ Jesus. That as we run the race, as we face the difficulty, we do that in light of who we are in Christ. And so that's that's the first part. And and, and we see this in chapter 4 and verse 1. Where there the Apostle Paul is speaking about this calling to which we are called. And this calling to which we are called is the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. United to him to become a faithful saint. And then in light of this glorious calling to Christ, Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 1, he exhorts us to live in a manner worthy of that calling. So there's orthodoxy, right doctrine, this is the truth, these are the facts about who God is and who you are in Christ. Now, in light of that, live rightly. Live a life in a a manner that is worthy of this high and glorious calling. So from orthodoxy, right knowledge, comes orthopraxis, right living. And these are the two major divisions of the book of Ephesians. This is the roadmap. This is the entire journey of the book of Ephesians, being encouraged with the realities of God's redeeming grace through Christ, being encouraged to live in light of that. Another way to look at this is the distinction between indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are, re- refers to facts being stated. The riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus, that's who you are. And the imperatives is how we are to live, the commands, the responsibilities are are doing. In light of who you are in Christ Jesus, live 
in a manner worthy of that high calling. Do you see what Paul is doing in Ephesians? He is saying, get in the game, stay in the game, understand who you are in Christ, live in light of who you are in Christ, and the church wins. Do you see Paul being a cheerleader here? Do you see Paul being the 12th man cheering the church on? I just love that. Because I don't know about you, I need some cheering on. I need orthodoxy. And I need somebody to cheer me on in orthopraxis. And this is the book of Ephesians. That I might live faithful. And just to drill this down just a little bit uh, further, you know, it's kind of interesting that these mobile devices we have, you know, they have these, uh, these maps, and now they have voice commands. Have you figured that out yet? I have. And they, they not only show you the turn-by-turn directions, but you've got this person screaming at you uh, with these <laughs> turn-by-turn directions and then saying when you make the wrong turn, you need to recalculate. Uh, you made the wrong turn. Well, as we are working through the book of Ephesians, I want you to have this overview in mind and to understand that what, what, one way to look at the book of Ephesians is that, is that through the Apostle Paul, God is giving us, he's, giving us, he's given us this wonderful letter, but he's also speaking to us at every turn, directing us in orthodoxy and directing us in right living so that in him we win. And I want to end with yet another way to look at this, just to, just to drive it home a little bit more. I had the wonderful privilege to go to the ancient city of Ephesus in, in, the, in the 90s with, with a group from our church. And I just remember the thrill I had. <laughs> Maybe you wouldn't be thrilled. But the thrill I had standing, standing in that amphitheater, standing on the stage thinking, my, oh, my, the, Apostle Paul, the gospel was preached here likely in the first century. And maybe the Apostle Paul stood here and preached the gospel. And you know what amphitheater is. It's got a stage like this, but the seats are up this way. So you don't really need a sound system. Sorry, Jim. It's just a wonderful way to amplify sound. And it's huge. Well, I want to reverse that. The way I look at the book of Ephesians is that I'm on the stage representing living the Christian life, seeking to be a faithful saint here in Little Rock. And the Apostle Paul is sitting up in the stands, and he is shouting to me, orthodoxy, the words of the first three chapters of Ephesians, and orthopraxis, the words of the last three chapters of Ephesians. And he's cheering me on to win. And he's doing the same for you. John Calvin said Ephesians was his favorite letter. Martin Lloyd-Jones said Ephesians is the most sublimest of all the books in the Bible because it more than any other book declares the glory and majesty and grace of God for his people. The book of Ephesians is our map to lead us along the journey to finish and win.
we are called in Christ by His rich grace to live for Christ in this world. Father in heaven, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for your continued work in our lives. Thank you for this journey that you've placed us. You've you've called us to be in Christ, and because we're in Christ, we're saints, and because we're saints, we're in this world to live for you. And so we trust you to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that which is helpful for your church, that which will bring you glory, that which will bring us to the finish line in victory. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.